Good morning, podcast listeners. This is Pastor George Swalney, Community Baptist Church, and so glad to be here with you this morning. I'm so glad that you have tuned in uh, to check out the Word of God today. Today we're still in the life of King David. We're uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 14. You might say, well, I read uh, 2 Samuel chapter 14 last week when you said that was where we were going, and it seems pretty boring. Not a lot going on there. Oh, contraire. There's a lot going on here in 2 Samuel 14. The title of the sermon today is Absalom Returns Home. It's an interesting message, and I, I hope that you enjoy it, and I really pray that um, the point of this message, it's not about you, it's not about me, it's about us as a country, it's about us as families, it's about uh, me being a father and you being a father and a mother and and the things that we pass down to the generations uh, that come after us. It's an important message. I hope you enjoy it. God bless you. And uh, come out and see us sometime here in Tuolumne. We'd love to see you. God bless you. The service will get started here in just a minute. We've been in the life of David and now in the life of King David for a long time. I think we started this on Mother's Day. I think I may have told you that before. And I, I, you know, this week was really kind of a strange week. Did everybody here lose their power too? It wasn't just everybody, everybody, yeah. And honestly, I didn't think uh, we were going to get it back uh, as quickly as we did. I thought that we probably wouldn't even have power on this Sunday morning. I want to let you know we were going to have church anyway. We have acoustic guitars and that piano. We would have had church anyway. Um, and all would have been well. But praise God, the power came back on, you know, and, and that uh, PG&E did a wonderful job, whatever it is they had to do to get it back on, but they did it. And I praise God for that. But I didn't even begin to look at where I was at until Thursday evening during a football game. You know, that's, I should never study during a football game. It just, it just doesn't, it's just not right. And I'll admit, come Friday morning, I was a little panicked because I had read chapter 14. We're in 2 Samuel 14, and it's, it's up on the board. You're welcome to, or you can pick up a Bible and follow along. I'm in an NIV Bible, and I believe that's what all our church Bibles are, if you choose to follow along in a Bible. But I read this chapter, and I went, well, that's boring, was my first thought. I'm watching football. And it was like, there was nothing happening, man. Nothing blew up. There was nothing. There was no great wars. There was, it was like this, really? That's where I'm going this week, Lord, is, is here? I finally went to bed and was praying about it. And the Lord said, you go back and read that again. If you tell me that the second time is boring, I'm going to spank you. Because there's a lot here. There's a lot here that we need to see. And it's interesting, yesterday at this conference, the guest speaker hit on almost every point that I have to make today. And I was like, Lord, it really is you. It really is you because as a church, and I'm not talking about us as a whole. I mean, we're part of the church. But we have done a very poor job at bringing up our children in Christ. 
not, not just, I think we've done a fabulous job right here, okay? But the church as a whole, around the world, think about how different our world would be today if we had stood up as Christians and said, no, you're not taking prayer out of school. Think of how many things have changed since we've taken prayer out of school. And denominations that have continually fallen to homosexuality and LGBTQYZ, you know, and all that, it just constantly falling into that it's okay. And I'm not saying I, I love all people and I will love them here. But we have to teach the truth. We have to teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, well, how does that relate to us in today? Well, it was pretty interesting. I, in this chapter, we're going to see Absalom, David's third oldest son, brought back into Jerusalem after three years of hiding in Geshur. He's hiding there because he killed his brother Amnon, and I'll, I'll fill you in. It's a horrible story, but I'll fill you in because you weren't, some of you weren't here last week. Amnon was his half-brother, and Amnon fell in love with Tamar, which was Absalom's sister, another child of King David. Because, see, King David had like 12, 13 wives, I don't know, lots of concubines and things that God didn't tell him to do that way, but he did. So he had these children, lots of them. And Amnon fell in love with Tamar, at least he thought it was love. We discovered even in his own verbiage that it was lust that he had fallen into, that he had fallen into lust, and then after raping her, he sent her away. And King David got angry, it said, but he didn't do anything about it. Here's where the problem lies. That's truly everything that we're going to talk about today is going to come back right to here, that King David didn't do anything about it. He didn't punish his kids. He didn't punish them the way the Levitical law had required. He wasn't acting in the capacity of the king that he was, let alone acting in the capacity of a father. We have to punish our children. Can I get an amen? amen. We spank them. We don't beat them. We don't bring them to bruise. But we rear them. There's a reason why they call it rearing. You know, that's how we get them to pay attention and to live and to learn, because we love them. And we're going to talk about that a little more this morning. David had this incredible sentimental attachment to his children whose sins he would not punish, whose lives he refused to discipline. Joab, his faithful commander, detected the longing in David's heart for the return of Absalom and achieved it by a lie, a ruse, a tale described in this chapter. So let's look at chapter, verse 1. 2 Samuel 14, verse 1. If you guys are at home listening to a podcast, if you can, go grab your Bible and join in. Joab, the son of Zerah, knew that the king's heart longed for Absalom. Well, let's stop there for just a minute. Understand that Joab 
was David's cousin. Zerah here is David's sister. Joab was a wise man, a, a loyal friend, a first cousin to the king. But some believe Joab's motivation here was likely personal. Absalom, he, they think, uh, was his best prospect of succeeding David to the throne. And Joab may have thought that his action of his part would be the best way to secure himself against the punishment which he deserved from the murder of Abner. I know you guys don't know if you weren't here, but Joab killed Abner, David's other commander of Israel, because Abner had killed his brother. And David, again, didn't do anything about it. I don't think that I buy this theory, that he was looking for a place to protect himself, because I believe if the king were going to punish Joab, he would have done it a long time ago. It seems like David has a problem with punishing those who are closest to him. Joab's scheme was like that of Nathan, who brought before David an alleged court case, by which was actually a parable. It was, it was just a story. A significant fact which emerges because of these stories here is that any wrong person in the entire kingdom had the right to appeal to the king himself for judgment. Now, I'm not saying this is the way they intended it. It's the way it worked out. And I see it as a type of Christ. Anyone of us have the right to take our case before the king, before the king of kings, and we just did that. We have the right to bring our needs, to bring our problems, to bring everything to the king, and that's only through what Jesus Christ had done for us. So I seen this as, as I read it the second time and took the Lord's nudging. All right, and he, I seen this. I said, that's a type of Christ right there. So let's go on with verse 2. So Joab sent someone to Tokia and had a wise woman brought from there. He said to her, pretend you are in mourning, dress in mourning clothes, and don't use any cosmetic lotions. Act like a woman who has spent her days grieving for the dead. Then go to the king and speak these words to him, and Joab put the words in her mouth. Well, let's talk about this for just a little bit. Joab, he sent to Tokia. Tokia is a, a modern Kerbet Tokia which is about 10 miles from Jerusalem. Since Joab was reared in Tokia, he probably knew the wise woman who he asked for help, or at least by reputation. I think the Bible may have been really generous here talking about this woman being a wise woman. I think she was probably a proficient liar, a proficient actor. Would be nice too. This wise woman I think was being, is a very nice description. Tokia was also a famous for the residence of the great prophet Amos. That's another story. So let's look to verse 4. When the woman from Tokia went to the king, she fell down with her face to the ground to pay him honor, and she said, Help me, your master. And the king said, What is troubling you? 
She said, I am a widow. My husband is dead. If you're, and I, your servant, had two sons. They got into a fight with each other in the field, and no one was there to separate them. One struck the other and killed him. Verse 7, now the whole clan was driven up against your servant, against the woman, they say. Hand over the one who struck his brother down so that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. Then we will get rid of the heir as well. They would put, on, put out the only burning coal I have left, leaving my husband neither name or descendant on the face of the earth. This really got to the king. This really moved him. He listened to her story. And he was moved with concern. Now, why was he moved with such concern? Do you think that David had no idea what Levitical law was? No, I think I'm pretty sure he was well-groomed in the law. The king said to her, woman, go home and I will wish you an order in your behalf. Verse 9, but the woman from Tokia said to him, let my lord the king pardon me and my family and let the king and his throne be without guilt. In other words, she's saying, it's a little bit hard to understand, but she's saying this, listen, king, if you do this, don't put the guilt on you, put the guilt on me. Don't let this affect the kingdom. Don't, don't let this, put, put the guilt on me. I'll take the blame for this, but don't have my son killed. She said then, verse 11, oh, wait a minute, did I miss 10? I did. And the king replied, if anyone says anything to you, bring them to me and they will not bother you again. Did you ever know a woman that just couldn't stop talking? I'm sorry, women, but sometimes they just won't stop talking, and she's still talking here. She said, verse 11, then let the king invoke the Lord his God to prevent the avenger of blood from adding to the destruction so that my son may be, may, will not be destroyed. As surely as the Lord lives, he said, not one hair of your son's head will fall to the ground. Well, this is all very interesting. To pray to invoke the Lord, the woman was not satisfied with the king's promise that he would take care of it. She requested that he enforce it with an oath, which he did. The reason for the woman's demanding made up before her application of the story in the case of Absalom, that the anger of the blood will slay no more. The avenger of blood was the nearest kin to the murdered man. His deputies it was all outlined. His duties were all outlined in Numbers 35. You can look at that later. The forgiveness of such a murder was a violation of God's commandment, a fact that the woman frankly admitted and in volunteering to accept the guilt upon herself. 
So let's look at Numbers 35. I want you to see the law in which she was referring to. Numbers 35, 16, it says, If anyone strikes someone a fatal blow with an iron object, that person is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. Verse 17, if anyone is holding a stone and strikes someone a fatal blow with it, that person is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. Verse 18, or if anyone is holding a wooden object and strikes someone a fatal blow with it, that person is a murderer and the murderer shall be put to death. The avenger of blood, verse 19, shall be put, the avenger of the blood shall put the murderer to death. The avenger, the, the harmed case, the family. When the avenger comes upon the murderer, the avenger shall put the murderer to death. Verse 20. If anyone with malice, a forethought, shoves another or throws something at them intentionally so that they die, verse 21, or out of enmity, one person hits another with his fist so the other dies, that person is to be put to death. That person is a murderer. The avenger of blood shall be put, shall put the murderer to death when they meet. Well, pastor, this is, this is some tough stuff. We're not under this covenant. We're under a new covenant. Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, and we have the right to forgive people. But how many know that if you go out and you murder somebody, there are consequences to pay. There are. You're going to go to jail. You're going to go to prison. The murder, and maybe they'll put it off as, as involuntary manslaughter, or you do less time. Uh, manslaughter, you do a little more time. Actual first-degree murder is more time, possibly the death penalty. We have laws that we, as Americans, abide by. We don't go around killing one another. Can I get an amen? We don't do that. The Bible was showing us how to write these laws, how to live. But now, and David knew all this. So let's go back to 2 Samuel 14, verse 12. Then the woman said, let your servant speak a word to my Lord. She's still talking. This woman refuses to be quiet. He replied, speak. Have you ever known a woman who just couldn't stop talking? I said that already, didn't I? I'll uh, delete that. The woman said, Why then have you devised a thing like this against the people of God? Hmm, what does he mean by that? What does she mean? When the king says this, does he not convict himself? For the king has not brought back his banished son like water spilt on the ground, which cannot be recovered, so he, we, must die. But that is not what God desires. Rather, he desires ways so that the banished son does not remain banished from him. Hmm. All of a sudden, this woman, Tokia, is telling her what she knows about God. That David should has a problem here because his son is banished, been gone for three years. We'll talk about this more in a second. Verse 15. 
And now I have come to say this to my Lord, the king, because the people have made me afraid. Your servant thought, I will speak to the king, but perhaps he will grant his servant's request. Verse 16, perhaps the king will agree to deliver his servant from the hand of the man who is trying to cut off both me and my son from God's inheritance. Then the king said to the woman, don't keep me, don't keep from me the answer in what I am going to ask you. Think about it now, what he just said. He said, don't keep me. The answer to which I am going to ask you. She said, let my Lord speak, the woman said. All of a sudden, he starts seeing a picture come clear. Isn't the hand of Joab with you in all this? See, the woman just wouldn't be quiet. She just wouldn't stop talking until David figured it out that Joab was the one behind this woman. The story she told him was completely false, but it did get him to start thinking about bringing his son home. Personally, as king of the country, he should have brought his son home and put him to trial. He should have. Now, with Levitical law, he probably would have been put to death pretty quickly, but maybe if they knew the whole story. Maybe if they had heard that it was because his sister was raped by Amnon, and, and maybe, maybe, just maybe things might have been different if he tried to do it a different way. So the woman said, verse 19, the woman answered, As surely as you live, my lord king, no one can turn to the right or to the left from anything my lord the king says. Yes, it is your servant Joab who instructed me to do this and to put the words into the mouth of your servant. In other words, he said, you, he told me what to say. Your servant Joab did this to change the present situation. My lord, his wisdom, like that of an angel of God, and knows everything that happens in the land. So she ends this with giving him compliments. My Lord has wisdom like an angel of God. The woman made effect to use flattery as she heaped a compliment after compliment upon the king. This appeal was not only in line with what David actually wanted to do, but it enforced and enhanced by every possible device. And it's no wonder to me that he granted it. Because we know that he was sick for his son wasn't there. We know that. But still, the king still has got it made up in his mind that he wasn't going to do anything about it. So then the king, he turns, and I think Joab was probably in the same room. At least that's how I picture it in my eyes. He's over there. She's telling her story. He turns and he looks to Joab and he says, he said to Joab, very well, I will do it. Go, bring back the young man Absalom. Joab, verse 22, fell to his face to the ground to pay him honor. And bless the king. Joab said, Today your servant knows that he has found favor in your eyes, my lord king, because the king granted his servant's request. 
Then Joab, verse 23, went to Geshar and brought Absalom back to Jerusalem. But this is interesting. Pay close attention to this, verse 24. But the king said, He must not go. He must go to his own house. He must not see my face. So Absalom went to his own house and did not see the king's face. That threw me. Wait a minute. What's going on here? If, if the king wanted Absalom back so bad because he misses his son. Guys, do you miss your sons when you're not around them? I do. And, and so I get that part. I, I, I can feel that part. But now all of a sudden he says, I don't want to see his face. I think probably, and this is just me thinking, I think probably King David was struggling with the right thing or the wrong thing to do. Bring him back, but I don't want to see him. Because as king, I should put him in shackles. I should take care of this once and for all. And he'd have been a wise man to do so, as we see in future weeks. He would have been a very wise man to do so. And the king said to Joab, I grant this. It appears from that that Joab was present at the interview. And the king transferred his attention from the woman to Joab. The fact that David acted in the character of a love-struck father rather than a constitutional king of Israel, his feelings of a father were trumpeted over his duty as a king. And I can almost understand that. Who is the supreme magistrate over Israel was bound to execute imperial judgment on every murder according to the express commands of Genesis 9, Numbers 35, Deuteronomy 18, Joshua 1, Samuel 10. I mean, it's all over the place. There's no doubt, whatever, that David's consenting to bring Absalom back from exile was as stupid as it was sinful and contrary to God's law. It was foolish. He should never have brought him back. If anything, as king, he could have banished him from the entire country as a son. Banish him. At least he'd stay alive in Geshur. We have laws that hold us together, that represent the word of God, that represent our country. It's quiet in here now. He paid in full a bitter price for the sinful indulgence and his affection for Absalom. But then he says he is not to come into my, my presence. This is hard to explain. And I, I think I explained it a little bit ago. I, I believe that David was just trying to, to not have to be kingly towards his son. Parenting today can take some real lessons from this story. Many people make the mistake of trying to be their child's best friend instead of trying to be their parent. There's a saying, spare the rod, spoil the child. You realize that's not a Bible saying? It was quoted by Samuel Butler, 
But check this scripture out. Let's go to Proverbs 3.24. It's very similar. Whoever spares the rod hates their children. But the one who loves their children is careful to discipline them. Good. I underline careful to discipline them. It's okay to spank your children. In fact, I encourage it. But never out of anger and never out of to the point of, of making them black or blue. If you can't hold yourself back, have your wife take care of it for you. Or if your wife's having a problem, have your husband take care of it for you. Step back. Analyze what you're going through personally before you raise a belt to that child. I'm not saying the child doesn't need a spanking. I don't, I'm not saying they, they don't need to be corrected. I'm saying that we have to do it very carefully with love. And it's going to hurt. Taking away a cell phone today hurts. It's okay. Because we need to do things to get our, our kids' attention. We need to teach them the standards that God has set out before us. If you understand this principle, then you completely understand what is wrong with our country today. And I'm not picking on you guys that have little kids. But today, when my son Ben, he's now 31 years old, when he was just a little guy, t-ball. You guys do the t-ball thing? And I, and I said, I went to the t-ball game, and I said, hey, uh, they don't have the scoreboard up. And they said, oh, we don't keep score. Everybody's a winner. And I said, what? You don't keep score. How are they going to know whether they need to get better or not if they don't keep score? Yeah, we don't, we don't keep score. You know, if you can't handle that, you might not want to come against. No problem. I got a little, I didn't have a phone at the time. I got a little paper out and I started keeping score. And I kept score all the way through. Ben got in the car and I said, well, how do you feel? And he goes, I don't know. I didn't say whether we win or lost. I said, everybody will win. I said, no, son, you won. You won. It was 23 to 14. You won. And there were many games that I went to and I said, you guys lost horribly. These guys are better. Do you know why they're better? Why? Because they practice more, son. It takes practice. You want to be a winner. You've got to work for it. You've got to get out there and run. You've got to get out there and swing that bat. You've got to throw that ball. You've got to prepare yourself to be the winner. It's part of growing up. But today's society says, no, 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 you can't do that to a kid. They're all winners. Just let them come and play. They're all winners. Everybody gets a trophy, even if they're losers. What? I'll take care of it myself. I had to go along with the program because that's the way the program was set up. But today, we don't feel that it's appropriate to punish our kids. I know my wife's a school teacher, and there's other teachers in this room. It, it's, we, we have problems in the school, do we not? The kids, they, they don't, you can't punish them. You can't touch them. You can't sit them in a corner. You can't do anything. We have a problem. And it starts with rearing our kids and doing it in love and, and, and love of a father and love of a mother to appropriately punish our children. 
because we see a story here. Well, let's go on with the story. Verse uh, 25. In all Israel, there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. Oh, we're going to start talking about Absalom now. What a handsome man he was. The Bible says so. His handsome appearance. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish in him. He was the Fabio of Israel. I mean, he had the hair. He had, he had it all, man. This guy was a handsome young man. In fact, whenever he cut his hair of his head, he used to cut his hair once a year because it became too heavy. He weighed it, and it weighed about 200 shekels by the royal standard. He had three sons and a daughter who were born to Absalom. And the Bible gives us his daughter's name was Tamar. He named after his sister, obviously. And she became a beautiful woman. Well, let's talk about this. As for the weight of the hair, scholars, some believe these figures. Payne gave it that three and one half to four pounds is what this hair weighed. Cook estimated at about six pounds. He also suggested that the figure of 200 shekels would have probably read more like 20 shekels. This guy named Curb gave the weight about three and one half pounds. Josephus gave it as five pounds. For all this, it was perfectly evident that the scholars did not know how much his hair weighed. But let me ask you this, what guy weighs his hair? Absalom. This, I'm telling you, pay attention to this. This gives us a picture into who Absalom was, his character. He's very vain. Six pounds of hair. You know. Whatever, dude. Who weighs it? Now, there was born to Absalom three sons and one daughter. Absalom later sets up a, a pillar and it's stated that his three sons that he had no sons. This does not contradict because all Absalom's sons actually died at infancy so their names were not given. That's kind of sad. But he had the one daughter whose name was Tamar and this um, might have been mentioned as proof of Absalom's love for his sister who Amnon raped. So let's go on with the story. Verse 28. It says, Absalom lived two years in Jerusalem without seeing the king's face. This is so interesting. Then Absalom sent to Joab in order to send him to the king, but Joab refused to come to him. Now Joab wants no part of him. So he sent a second time. Hey, Joab, come on over here. Come on over. I, I got to talk to the king. You got to help me. But he refused to go. So verse 30 says, Then he sent his servants, Absalom did, Look, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go set it on fire so we can get, so we can get Joab's attention. You think that would do it? Yeah, set his barley on fire. That would do it. And Absalom said to Joab, Well, wait a minute, go back up a little bit. 
And Joab said, verse 31, Then Joab did go to Absalom's house, and he said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? What is going on? And Absalom said to Joab, Look, I sent word to you and said, Come here so I can send you to the king to ask, Why have I come from Geshar? It would have been better for me if I was still there. Now then, I want to see the king's face, and if I'm guilty of anything, let him put me to death. He obviously doesn't think that he is guilty of anything. Pretty obvious, right, by that? Because he should be simply put to death. I mean, what he did, he did. If there was guilt, let them kill me. How could actually Absalom believe that there was no guilt in himself? His cold-blooded, premeditated murder of Amnon cried out to God for punishment, but Absalom admitted no crime, accepted no feeling or shame or guilt for himself, had no ambiguous uh, ignorance, arrogance, and so himself to David, to present himself to David as one worthy of his full confidence and trust. He was very arrogant. And he had really convinced himself, how many times have we had sin in our lives? We can just talk like we're friends, right? We're friends here. Had sin in our lives, and we kind of shove it back and go, we don't need to talk about that. That's done, it's over, it's in the past. But you never bring it to the Lord. Now, granted, I don't talk about my sin in the past. I got boatloads of them that I could talk about, but I don't talk about the past because I don't want to enhance my sin and go, wow, what a fun guy George was when he was out there drinking. No, I'm not going to talk about that. But Jesus Christ died on that cross and forgave me so that I can put them away. Well, what if I had done something as horrific as something like this and just decided that I'm not going to ask the king, which in our king would be King Jesus, I'm not going to ask anybody for forgiveness. I'm just going to believe that I didn't do it. Boy, it happens in the real world today. I'm just going to believe that I'm not guilty. How many people will refuse to come to church because they go, I'm not a sinner. I live a good life. I work hard. I take care of my kids. I pay my bills. I do everything. They're wonderful citizens. But they don't believe that they're guilty of anything. And yet we were all born into sin. Every one of us. Every one of us were born into sin, and yet people every day act just like Absalom, that we don't need Jesus Christ. I haven't sinned. I haven't been so bad. So let's look at verse 33, and I'll get you guys out of here. So Joab went to the king and told him. Then the king summoned Absalom. So Joab went to the king and told him, hey, you go see your son because he's burning down my stuff. And the king said, all right, fine, send him over. And he came to the king, and he bowed down his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. You've got to understand, culturally, it wasn't a father kissing a son. Culturally, when the king kissed the person, they were absurd, uh, uh, absolved. They were forgiven. This was more than just a kiss of a father who missed his son. You have to understand that, or it doesn't make any sense. You would say, how, pastor, did you come to that? Because what he was doing was forgiving Absalom for the murder of his other son. 
And maybe from a father's perspective, maybe David had that right. If my son killed somebody, I would still love him. He'd be in prison for the rest of his life, but I would still love him. I would do everything I could to go see him. I would hope he would get to a prison where there's a guy like Jim Reville with a prison ministry and learn and grow and develop in prison. We don't just stop loving our kids, and I understand that. But culturally, David was clearing all of Absalom's offenses. And Absalom was on his face before the king, knowing what he was going to do to the king. I'm going to take his kingdom. I'm going to take him down. He's had five years of thinking how his dad didn't defend his sister. He has five years of anger built up. Don't tell me that your inside anger that you're holding down or that doesn't count. It counts because it's building up in Absalom and he's laying down before his father as if he fought, loves his father, but he does not. He has every intention to take over the entire land, to kick David out of this throne and even kill him if he has to. There's no love involved here. So think about this for just a minute. How different would have the story have been if David had punished Amnon for raping Tamar? I think it would be a totally different story that we'd be reading here today. A totally different story if he had just done what he was supposed to do. I'm not saying that he had to go kill him. Maybe they had laws. Maybe they could have made him into a eunuch. I don't know. They could have done something put him into prison for a long period of time, do something that would ease the pain that Absalom and Tamar were going through. The Bible doesn't even tell us whatever happened to Tamar. She's not mentioned anymore. Now we have um, a daughter from Absalom named Tamar, but we don't know what ever happened to his sister. It's, it's a critical story to understand that it's important that we take care of the things that we need to take care of if you're in sin, get forgiveness. Bring it before God. Say, God, forgive me. Forgive me of this. Renew me. And let's move on. If you're a parent and you're trying to raise these precious kids that God has put in your life to raise, be a dad. Be a mom. Take care of the business at hand. But do it appropriately. Don't be afraid to punish your kids. You're not their best friend. You're their mom. You're their dad. Am I speaking the truth? That is exactly what, because I know that you're a good mom, and I know you take care of those kids right. And, and that's what we have to do. It's what we have to do. Well, I'm a grandpa. Well, you know what? Grandpa needs to get involved. When I see my grandkids going, <laughs> believe me, I get involved. I might go to my son and say, listen, son, we got to talk to these girls. I don't like what I see. And he'll explain to me what's going on. And he'll say, okay, let's go talk to them. I need some help. Because we have to love them. But we're leading them to be. They're the next church. They're the future. If we don't start teaching those that are behind us how to worship, how to pray, how to serve God, how are they going to know? And it has to start at home. Amen?